Hello everyone and welcome back to Backyard Geology Canada Edition. I am your host Serena, back for another bonus episode. If you haven't already, check out episode 3 of this season of Backyard Geology Canada Edition where I visit Sudbury, Ontario to check out the Sudbury Igneous Complex. A meteorite impact 1.85 billion years ago acted as Earth's very own natural smelter, forming world-class metal deposits in the Sudbury area. Geologists play a huge role in the mining industry as knowledge of the subsurface and the processes that led to economic deposits guide mining operations. Today, I am joined by an extraordinary businesswoman and geologist, Dr. Catherine Farrow in Sudbury, to talk about the economic significance and societal ramifications of the Sudbury Igneous Complex, as well as Catherine's interesting career history. Hello, Catherine, and welcome to Backyard Geology. Hi there. Uh, thanks so much for having me. As a student, I recently participated in an educational program from the Canadian Society of Petroleum Geologists to learn about Canada's oil and gas industry. I'm fascinated by the intersection of geology with business and was surprised to learn how common that is here in Canada. Today, I hope to dive into your career as it pertains to the Sudbury Impact Complex. Student listeners, as well as myself, could benefit from any advice you might have for those entering the field of mining. With that, would you please introduce yourself to listeners? Um, hi, I'm Catherine Farrow, and uh, I am currently living in Sudbury, and uh, I actually did my PhD here on um, uh, a topic based in the Sudbury Ignis Complex. So, but from there, you know, life changes, and uh, I did a short stint at the OGA, the Ontario Geological St Survey, and then uh, switched to industry and, um, and have kind of moved through industry. I haven't always done geology, so it's been quite a ride. <laughs> so currently, what is your official job title? I guess the best title would be president of Ferrex Geomine, which is my um, private consultancy. And I do a bit of work for advisory work for a variety of different companies. But what's been interesting is that I've uh, I've been doing quite a bit of work with companies that have maybe struggled a bit uh, in under current conditions, especially exploration companies, which is kind of interesting because I kind of stepped away from exploration. I also sit on the board of three companies that are publicly traded, and uh, um, Franco Nevada is one, Eldorado Gold is another, and the third is Sentiment PLC, which is listed on the primary listing is on the uh, London Stock Exchange. And these are all either mid-tier or major companies. So, I, you know, it's, it's been a lot of fun to keep my hand in during the pandemic in seeing how we've managed to, all over the world in various jurisdictions, keep mining and really raise our visibility as, as important parts of economies and essential to economies around the world. So... I also do a few other things. I, I am chair of Exiro Minerals, which is a private company that focuses on getting the most out of old data sets and using newer technologies. And I'm also uh, on the advisory board. I'm the inaugural advisory board member of a Industrial Internet of Things uh, Software as a Service Company, or SaaS, called uh, BearTech. 
And then I do a couple of other things on the side. I chair of Merck at, at Laurentian University. I'm on the Goodman School of Mines advisory board. I'm also on the Metrolinx board. So I got a, I've got, and I've been a, a adjunct prof at Laurentian University for years. So a lot on my plate, but you know, it's been a lot of fun, uh, even though we've, I think, made just incredible adaptations over the last year and a half of the pandemic but i i do see light at the end of the tunnel and uh, i'm looking forward to getting out and and uh, being part of the leadership teams in the various companies that i'm involved in wow so you've been doing a lot during the pandemic oh yes <laughs> i have a very full schedule <laughs> completely so you mentioned that you have a bit of a unique career path i'm interested to hear where did you start when did you end up in geology and when did you transfer more into the business side of things? I guess I got interested in geology when I was about 11 years old. And my grandfather, who was a psychiatrist, actually, he gave me a nest wing hammer. And, uh, and he was very much into like polished stones and things like that, and, and, which I thought was kind of fun. And so I think I think things evolved from there. Um, went to university, was going to double major in chemistry and geology. I went to Mount Allison University. I'm originally from uh, Mississauga, actually, the Toronto area, and really, really enjoyed the geology and ended up doing that primarily. And, um, and then I went and did my master's with Sandra Barr at Acadia. And then from there, I, I did want to get more into economic geology. So I went uh, to do my PhD at Carleton with Dave Watkinson. And that's where I got working on sort of the role of fluids in footwall mineralization in the Sudbury Igneous Complex. And I, my focus area was on the North Range. I did an awful lot of mineralogy and, and other things as a part of that PhD study. And what was interesting, that, that comes into play a little bit later on. I was married. I got married out of my, my bachelor's. So I, I was cognizant of the fact that I did not want to run around anymore um, and do postdocs and that kind of thing. So I, I took a job with the Ontario Geological Survey and I worked there as a geoscientist for um, I think three and a half years. And then I did want to get more into the, the economic side of the, really the mining side. I was always really interested in that. And I, I joined INCO and this is where the mineralogy kicks in. They, they wanted somebody to replace the, the person who was running their process mineralogy lab in Sudbury, who was also a member of INCO Technical Services. It was called INCO Exploration and Technical Services at the time. And we were kind of the global people, everything from geologists to engineers and everything else that sort of are the technical services group for global INCO. And so it was kind of interesting. So I went back to, you know, really focusing on mineralogy, but the, the, the job really evolved over the years. I, I ran the lab, obviously, but I had the opportunity to start working quite a bit with mines research, uh, mines technical services in Sudbury and, and elsewhere. Worked a lot on metallurgical problems all over uh, jurisdictions that, that INCO was in. I got into project evaluation and, you know, it was a lot of fun and, and supported some exploration programs as well and traveled the world and worked underground quite a bit and everything else. It was, I, I had, you know, I did three jobs in one and I just loved it. It was so much fun and I got such good training being with a major company. And then I decided I wanted to get more into the business. So I left INCO to join a startup called FNX Mining. I was trying to rejuvenate. Um, several old Inco mines 
and, and properties in the Sudbury Basin area. And so I joined them as chief geologist originally, and we started up, restarted one old Inco mine, and then we had a chain of successes exploration-wide, which resulted in us uh, reopening a couple of old mines in Sudbury. We made eight major discoveries and basically put five mines into production. And, you know, that was pretty exciting, although I went from I went into roles, I got very quickly, I moved into corporate and got into, for a short time, I was VP exploration. Then I got into, I was senior VP corporate development and technical services, I think. And then we merged with another company and I sort of got much more, I did a couple of different jobs because the company was really morphing because when you merge two companies and create sort of suddenly a mid-tier with six operating mines and uh, jurisdictions in North America and South America, it's pretty busy. So I, you know, I, I was kind of the chameleon in the new uh, executive team, if you will, in the boardroom. And so I ended up getting more and more involved in the operations side. And by the end of all that, I was, that company was called Quadra FNX. And by the end of the, all that, I, I became chief operating officer. And then we were taken over by KGHM. And became, which is the ninth, at the time was the ninth largest copper miner in the world. And it's Polish, partly owned by the Polish government. And so we, um, we became, that Quadra FNX became KGHM International. And I stayed for a short time as chief operating officer. And we had six mines. Like I said, we had two major projects that we were developing. And uh, I left that. And I really didn't know what I wanted to do next, but, you know, kind of lived on the edge for about 10 years and it was time to step back and reevaluate my career. And about two days later, I, I got a phone call from Terry McGibbon and, and he was starting up a company called TMAC and wanted Gord, who was my partner in crime at, at FNX, Gord Morrison, he wanted to know if Gordon and I would be interested in joining him at TMAC and helping to get that started. So we did. Um, we ended up uh, taking on the Hope Bay um, area, the Hope Bay Greenstone Belt um, up in the high Arctic of Canada and uh, taking over a project started by Newmont. Over the course of five years, we finished building Doris Mine. We put in a processing plant. We upgraded the facilities, we made a number of discoveries, and um, I left in 2027. By then, we had declared commercial production at Doris Mine, which uh, the Doris Mine complex, and had a, had a variety of things happening within my own family, um, and I stepped away. Now, since then, TMAC has been sold to Agnico Eagle and sort of they're operating in that, that belt right now. So since then, then I got started doing the things I'm doing now. My, my intention was to take about a year, whatever, off and kind of disappear from the world. And I, and I did. I, you know, it, it had been a, a, a crazy 15, 20 years and I had done so much and it was time to reset with my family. And uh, and now, and here I am, <laughs> you know, uh, four years after that, almost four years after that, just uh, trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. You know, I was at TMAC, I was CEO and, uh, you know, learned a lot there too. So I've, uh, you know, really transitioning from 
if you had told me when I started my PhD that that was how my career was going to go, I was going to end up being a chief operating officer of an international company with mines all over the world. I, I, I mean, I don't know how I would have, you know, predicted that or mapped that out. And then being CEO of a company that built the first operating gold mine in, in Katikmit region of Nunavut in the high Arctic of Canada. Um, if you had told me that when I was doing my PhD, I don't know how I would have predicted that. Right. So, you, you know, that's, you just work hard, expose yourself to luck and have some fun with it. <laughs> Excellent advice. Work hard, expose yourself to luck and have lots of fun. So why do you think that it is important for up-and-coming geologists and for geologists throughout their careers to have an understanding of the more business side of mining? Well, I think there are a couple of ways of looking at that. And the first thing is be good technically. And, and you know, in the early, the first 10 plus years of my life, I worked really, really hard at being good technically because if you don't get the rocks right, you won't get the mine right and it is what it is like that's the way it works and uh, whenever i've been involved in making major transformations in a mine there are things you can do that are business tweaks but the best way to perform better is get the rocks right know what you're feeding the mill know that you've designed things properly all the way up so i i think spend that time and get good technically and realize i think for geologists and this is, this is kind of a little aside, but one of the things I'm doing a lot of advisory work for is junior exploration companies right now, which was not the plan. Again, none of this was planned out. But where they really need to, they seem to need the help is understanding how to put process to the exploration, their exploration programs and a strategy behind it that actually helps them find mines, not, not, make discoveries, but find mines. And, and that's the economics behind it. And I think that uh, once you get good technically, you've got to expose yourself. And one of the things I really believe for young exploration geologists is they need to spend time in a production environment to figure out exactly what a mine looks like, because I think that's very important. I know that in the past, some major companies have made that part of their training for the exploration geologists. And I think that's really good be part of multidisciplinary teams. If you have the chance, work with metallurgists, work with engineer, the mining engineers, work with the financial people, figure out what they do because everybody's part of the success of an organization if you work within a big one and if you have that opportunity. But I, I think those are the first steps. And if you start to figure that out, the business bits will start to come and then you can start to figure, oh, well, how does the company actually work? You know, what's the organizational structure? What's their capital structure? You know, how much does this cost really? Mm -hmm. You know, when you start to add up what your costing is in your um, geological programs and what the engineers are costing and how much it co actually costs to put a, uh, a ton of ore through a mill or something like that. And, and eventually it'll all come together. But really, it has to be based in you as a geo, really understanding what 
your role is and an understanding as much as you can about the rocks. Well, the geologists have the, we have the laser vision for the subsurface. That's right. Which is ultimately really important if you want. Laser vision? Oh, I was thinking crystal ball, but. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. Okay. Either, either <laughs> will do. In order to have efficient mining operations, like economically and also environmentally, you need the geologist to be involved. But then again, as a geologist, you need to understand what's going on with the business and with the economy to make suitable decisions. Absolutely. And I think you raised a really important part, and that was the environmental part. You know, we're doing some very good things in our industry, and we've really taken on the the ESG hat. And, and we were doing it in the form of what we used to call CSR. And some companies do it better than others. But, you know... Um, what is CSR? Corporate social responsibility. So that was in the old days, that was working with your communities that were maybe you were impacting or something mm -hmm. as an exploration team or as a, as, a, as a mining company. Thankfully, that has broadened significantly. And really, um, I think as much a part of the business story right now, because it's something that some people are still resisting, is the whole concept around the environmental responsibility, the social responsibility, and, and good governance. I don't think that's filtered down through all parts of our industry yet. Uh, and I think it, it's being met with some resistance at, at some levels. But, you know, for the most part, here we are and we're doing a good job. And I'm involved in a group with, I've spent a lot of time working with a group called Energy and Mines. And, you know, that's low hanging fruit for us in our industry right. because so many of our operations are in remote areas that are so-called off the grid. And, and in some cases, we're, we work in environments, let's take the Ar Arctic, for example. We have no other option than diesel right now to run your plant. And that's how the communities get by. So we've got to ask some hard questions and we can participate that in our, in our industry. We've taken on the damage, the absolutely devastating damage that some tailings failures have happened. That's on us, right? We got to do that. But we're also giving some huge opportunities to communities. And so I think there's a lot of good things going on, but I think that push has to continue. I'm really interested when we when we sort of we're getting we're talking about the environment here. One of the arguments I always make is that as we move towards more sustainable practices, geologists play a really important role in that because ultimately if you can say exactly where where the ore is and where the metals are, we can do things a little bit more efficiently, which is good. Absolutely. You mentioned reopening mines and I'm really curious to know these older mines that you reopened, how, how did they differ from the way that you would mine them nowadays? And did you sort of adapt the mines to fit current, perhaps more sustainable mining practices? Or is that even possible? Um, that's a good question. I think with respect to sustainability and mining, a lot of the areas that we were working, you know, when you're rehabbing an old mine and you're, and you're rejuvenating it, so to speak, and getting it back into production, um, the footprint's already there. You, you will just because of how we handle waste and how we do things today, you will do a more sustainable job. Uh, we, we run more efficient vehicles. And yes, we may, we may run electric vehicles underground, for example, and, we may, and, our, and our, our, our trucks and our other things haulage in, in pits is much more, they're much more efficient than they were back in the day. But remember, there's already a, a footprint that we would not have left in today's mining practices there. So in a way, it's it's kind of um, kind of a we already do it better, but the, but there's already a footprint there. Yeah. The issue now, I think, with rejuvenating old mines 
is the responsibility to to really ramp up our efforts around concurrent rehabilitation. And some of that will take on the historical liabilities and things like that, and it has to. And so I think that that is, um, uh, and I think that's being, for the most part, that's happening, uh, depending on what jurisdiction you're in. And our jurisdiction in Canada, we're quite regulated compared to a lot of parts of the world where not so regulated. And unfortunately, it is what it is. People may take advantage of the fact that there's less regulations in other parts of the world. So in effect, we're we're doing a better job in Canada. I'm, I don't by any means think that we can't still raise the bar, but be just the nature of our jurisdiction, we are doing better. So I think that's a really important point. Okay, that's that's good to know where Canada stands and the considerations that you have to make when you are rejuvenating a mine. Can I, can I add one thing about the social where I think we need to do more? And it's a bit of a diversity story. Do you, mean, do you mind if I kind of hijack you for a minute? Is there something quite passionate about mine? Absolutely. One of the things, I mean, let's just touch on this because it really is a hot topic right now. I'm considered a diverse candid- candidate for, let's say, you know, boardroom positions. So senior management or boards or whatever, because I'm a woman and we're kind of a have traditionally been um, a rare breed in, in our industry in certain aspects. And, and in fact, for much of my career, I was the only woman in the room. So that's why, but, you know, no biggie. But I remember if I placed myself in the situation of sitting in boardrooms and listening to the, the beginning rumblings of, 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 we then called it equality or something. In the, I, I, we used a different term than diversity. It used to be that, well, you know, there aren't as many technical women in the industry. We can't get good board members. We can't get good people into the boardroom in, in senior executive roles. So that was a common refrain. But, you know, we've made good strides. Uh, I sit on the board of Eldorado Gold. We Half of our board is, is female. And certainly that is um, uh, a significant and leadership position within a mid-tier gold company um, traded on the TSX. So, so we're proud of that. But I think that the next story for us, diversity-wise in our industry in Canada, is the responsibility to start having those questions around senior management and boardroom positions in general around Indigenous Canadians. And the thing is, and guess what? We're doing that. A couple of companies I work with. Uh, but you know what? The same conversations are being had in the industry. Oh, uh, lack of, you know, number of people who are qualified and everything else. If you could see the number of people who are more than qualified that uh, have been passed over for years, it's the same conversation we were having 15 or 20 years ago about women in general, you know, getting into these kinds of roles. So, so I think we need to make a transformation and uh, I would like to see that happen. And I, I could talk at length about this, but I think that that is the next important ESG step that we have to make. And, and these aren't just like, no, you can't have the token woman, woman on your board. Well, no, you're not going to have the token whatever person on your board. Like, let's just have a different conversation. So it's interesting to hear that you were, so you were there when they started talking about having more women in these roles. And that's, in your opinion, has that been, for the most part, achieved? No, it hasn't been achieved, but we've made a lot of progress. 
and continue and and we continue continue to making a lot of progress and continuing to make progress and you would like to now see that made with indigenous canadians as well yes this could be a whole like podcast on its own <laughs> i'm glad to hear that influential people like yourself in the industry are are thinking about these things and putting them into action oh absolutely and be, being a trailblazer, as I tell people, it, it's sometimes a rocky road, but I think that the benefits are, are um, so, so, so very wonderful and important. Absolutely. Yeah, now we can talk about Sudbury. Catherine, let's talk about mining in the Sudbury Igneous Complex. It is a large complex, we know that, and mining will be happening for a really long time. What is the long-term potential of the Sudbury Igneous Complex? Sure. Um, yeah, the, you know, Sudbury is amazing, amazing place because of the, the still unmined uh, huge resources that are that that are um, in existence. And uh, the best way to answer the question is talk about um, three or four of them. And one of them that comes to mind right off is the Victoria deposit. Valet has it north of the, of the airport in Sudbury. It was discovered in the early 1990s, very early 1990s by Gord Morrison and, and his team and, and Yves Lamontagne of Lamontagne Geophysics. And in fact, it, it has a exploration shaft on it. They've done work underground and that, but that's a that's a significant and parts of it are extremely high grade out the footwall of the Sudbury Igneous Complex. Another one that could be uh, is the Victoria, well, sort of the new Victoria deposit, because Vict- there was a Victoria mine that was mined in the 21st century or in the 20th century by Inco back in the day. And then we discovered the Victor- the no- new Victoria deposit in uh, 2008. Uh, Headframe's actually collared on it by KGHM International, and that's currently um, uh, under development as well. But I think it's it's care and maintenance right now. But a wonderful deposit there as well. In the north, and that's over on the west side of the Sudbury Igneous Complex. And um, Glencore has on a pink depth, which they've developed um, below the Craig mine, which is quite deep and, and a technical challenge. But we're in the we're in the place in in the technical advancements of mining at depth through ventilation and temperature management and 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 those and and other efficiencies that allow us to mine down there that I think are really exciting. And in fact, Glencore are doing some really interesting things uh, northwest of the old Podolsky mine that KGHM International well, FNX actually discovered back in the early 2000s and mined. And that's uh, Norman it used to be called Norman West, and that's a very exciting project that they've been working on, um, doing a lot of advancing, detailed drilling on, and that kind of thing. So, I mean, those are just some examples of you know if you found these as standalone projects in a more greenfields environment, I mean, this would be a huge transformational event for a, a junior mining company, let's say, in a greenfields environment. And yet here in Sudbury, these are four very interesting projects that are hugely rich. And uh, so I think it speaks to, you know, really the momentum that can be maintained here in Sudbury. And uh, it's pretty exciting. 
these discoveries are going to keep being made, as we as we said. So the reason I hope so. <laughs> the igneous complex is a big place. It's a big place, yeah. And it's got you know, you know, it's like real estate, eh? Location, location, location. <laughs> Yes, I referred to the igneous complex or the meteorite impact that that built it as the natural smelter oh. of the earth that helped that helped bring all these I guess sort all these deposits nicely for us to then stumble upon during the Holocene and make lots of money on. <laughs> that's a great. I love that. Well done. I love that analogy. Thank you. Well, that's pretty much what happened, right? Just in a, a bit of a less less controlled environment. Oh, I agree. Yeah, I love it. In one of the episodes, I talk about kimberlite pipes and how we evaluate how kimberlite pipes are evaluated for economic potential. Because, you know, some kimberlites have diamonds, but then not all kimberlite pipes that have diamonds are necessarily worth being mined. So I'm interested to know what kind of metrics you're typically looking for in subsurface deposits from a business perspective that can classify them as economically significant or not. I recognize that this might be a bit of a different story in Sudbury because you have so many operational mines, whereas, you know, a Kimberlite in the middle of Russia or Northern Canada would be far more expensive to develop from scratch. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I've just talked about four major um, development projects that currently exist. So, So Sudbury is very, very different. Skilled labor force, and we know that talent is in some parts of our industry is lacking. It's at a premium. The fact that you can work in Sudbury and then go home at night is 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 an attractive thing to people. Live in a city of 165,000 people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So so it's a very different world here. Uh, we have we're accessible to everything. We have infrastructure, mm-hmm. and we have a um, we're in a location that values mining. If you're looking at the business aspects of discoveries elsewhere, you've touched on a really, really important point. And basically, accessibility is a proxy for costs. Okay. So if you are drilling in a helicopter supported drill camp in a remote part of Canada, let's say very extreme north of northwestern Ontario or in the Arctic or something like that, where there's no access. Uh, other than by air, and you uh, have to build, run your own camp. You know, you may be looking at drill meterage costs of eight hundred dollars a meter or something. Um, that might be, let's say, three times what it is in Sudbury. Now, this this current environment where there's a lot of capital in the market and people have money, of course, you're paying a premium for for getting good teams and, and, and good drills into projects right now anyway. But I mean, it really sends a message of how the economics, that's just the economics of uh, exploration, right? Um, and then if you take your co- capital costs, if you're going to build a mine and build those in, you're looking at, at similar things. You know, one of the interesting things we used to say, it's a really easy metric when we were, when we were building at Hope Bay was that if we used we we had access to a port. We we had a port. Uh, well, actually, it was a jetty, but you know, it, it is a way of moving bulk goods around by ship for the the very short window that you have in the Arctic to ship them. If you planned and properly properly planned and managed to get a product on a boat and get it shipped in a sea can and 
in the in the late summer, uh, while the shipping season was open, it had X cost for shipping. If you took that same item and you had not planned and you put it on an airplane and you flew it up in the middle of February, that cost of that item would be 10 times or 10x. So this is this this these are the kinds of challenges you're looking at once you get away from roads and cities and infrastructure and talent because now you're paying a premium once you're not in a city like Sudbury you're paying a premium for that talent to fly them into something or to actually give them signing bonuses or some other form of remunerating them so they'll actually want to work for you right to draw them away so so those are the kinds of challenges you have that you really have to factor in when you're looking at other projects uh, that may or may not be in a mining environment. I could be talking about Valdor or Sudbury or whatever. You know what I mean? You're saying a lot of most of the deposits in Sudbury are value no matter how big or small because you have the infrastructure to to deal with them and the people and the talent, which all comes together in you know, this attractive mining community. Yeah. So, and then your challenge now in Sudbury is that from an from a business perspective, is now we're exploring and mining at depth. I'll take the Victoria mine example that it's currently not fully developed. You get hints of the mineralization at about 800 meters depth, and you really don't get into what you might call something that will eventually be a reserve. It's not a reserve yet until about a thousand meters depth. So we're talking, these things are deep. And so that we do have that as our extra challenge because that, that becomes a, a, more, a more technically challenging environment geologically and engineering and operationally. Um, and it all, then adds cost. Absolutely. That was my follow-up question was what challenges does Sudbury face? Because I mean, you just kind of described it as this ideal mining town, but <laughs> well, I think because, so. <laughs> because it's being mined so much, the mines are going deeper and deeper and yeah. deeper. Yeah. Okay. Just out of my own curiosity, what is, are there a depth thresholds to mines in Sudbury where they then become decommissioned? Well, I don't know that we fully challenged that yet. I think Okay. Oh, I should rephrase that because they're challenged. They're challenges, but I don't think we're at the limit yet. Um, you know, I once you get to about three thousand meters, it's it's life is hard. <laughs> it's pretty hot. Um, you know, you got to be pretty careful with the ground. Uh, you know, um, so these are some of the things that I I think that once you get beyond three thousand meters, we're we're really pushing it. Our technologies are growing with the needs of mining. And, you know, maybe in, in my lifetime or, or later on, we'll see mines that are 4,000 meters deep or deeper because we have the technologies to, to accommodate that. I think so. I, I think that's a great observation. Yeah. Why not? You know, you got a dream. <laughs> that's how you, you, you know, that's how you challenge yourself to great things. Just have a dream. On the topic of sustainability, has there been any significant remediation of mine sites in Sudbury for mines that have been decommissioned? My husband and I were talking about that the other day. And there's a really good narrative out there right now because recently in the news, well, for those who are, are following it, um, there's been quite a bit of talk about how back in the early 70s, uh, NASA um, astronauts were training to use certain 
pieces of equipment uh, in the moonscape that was Sudbury, the city. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of reasons for that. I mean, Sudbury had been decimated by practices in the early 19th century or the early 20th century, open roasting pits and cutting down all the trees for fuel for that. And then having these huge, because of the open roasting pits, these huge sulfuric posits um, all over the countryside. So that your first lightning storm, it was just a raging fire. So, I mean, the, the place was decimated, the emissions, you name it, right? So I'm sitting here and, you know, if I could pick up my computer and walk my camera over to the window, I, I'm sitting here on Ramsey Lake. And uh, all I really see, I see some houses off to the east and a, a couple of old decommissioned um, stacks at Coniston. Uh, a memory of a of a of a smelter complex that was long since gone. But really, that's the only feeling for any any industrial signature that you see. And then it's it's just green. It's trees. And I'm living in the middle of Sudbury, and one of the most important mining districts in the entire world. And so, um, how that landscape in general has been transformed with planting trees and working to reclaim uh, lakes like Ramsey Lake that was full of all kinds of bad stuff 40, 50 years ago has been huge. And I think we've really shown a lot of leadership as a community as far as that's concerned. So it's a wonderful story, just that in itself, you know? I mean, the fact that that, that big stack you know, we always talk about the big stack in Sudbury. That stack is due to come down. They don't need it anymore. We we smelt much more efficiently now and 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 treat uh, capture a lot of what we would have emitted into the atmosphere before and treat it in very different ways as an inter industry, and uh, and actually put some of that otherwise emitted matter back into use as saleable products. So, so the, 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 the stack that is, you know, dominated Sudbury skyline since the early seventies is about to be de decommissioned, brought down. It's going to, it's not going to exist anymore. And I think those two examples on a broad scale show the power of a community to really transform itself into something that, that really does send a wonderful positive message about what can be done. I mean, mining itself takes a team of geologists and engineers and business people. But what you mentioned about remediation also takes a, a huge team of biologists and ecologists and engineers. So I liked what you mentioned about... And geologists. <laughs> and geologists, of course. So I liked what you mentioned about, about the community again, because I mean, that in itself combined with the mining makes for makes for a prosperous community and as you said giving the example of looking looking out of your home and being able to see absolutely a nice lake and green trees yeah and I'm right in the middle of the city of Sudbury that's where I live and so I, I just think um, uh, you know there are some really positive stories to tell and and thanks for the opportunity to be able to share them like that one because I think it's I, I just don't think we talk about these things enough Oh, absolutely. I mean, mining, even initially, as I was getting into it, it seems bad. Like you said, there there are positive stories because we have lots of people working on more sustainable practices and lots of people working on, on remediation of the lands. So I'm glad to hear that. 
I have never actually been to Sudbury myself. So well, you'll have to come. <laughs> thank you for the thank you for the description. Uh, oh yeah, it's a great view. Um, no, I mean that you know these are the things that it, this is actually a really fun interview because we're really touching on things that geos I just don't think talk about enough when we're when when we're sitting in university. I think this is a really good idea. Thank you so much for joining me today, Catherine. Um, as a student, it was really interesting to hear about your experience in the field of mining in Ontario. And I hope fellow listeners have were able to, to take something from this talk today. Well, thank you. It's been really enjoyable talking to you. And I think we've touched on a couple of interesting topics. And uh, so I hope the uh, listeners enjoy in the future. For sure. This podcast could have been like four separate podcasts, but that's for another date. Okay. Well, maybe we'll do that. <laughs> Okay, bye, Catherine. Okay, bye-bye. Catherine's experiences in Ontario's mining sector stretch far beyond the geology of it all. The Sudbury Igneous Complex has made for a prosperous mining community where people like Catherine can build exciting and diverse careers. I am pleased to hear about the advances being made in mining and remediation efforts that upkeep such a vital industry here in Canada. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this bonus episode of Backyard Geology Canada edition, please share it with your family and friends. Backyard Geology is part of the Geology Podcast Network and is sponsored by Traveling Geologist. You can find episodes from the Geology Podcast Network wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Traveling Geologist to never miss a new release. <laughs>